This podcast is brought to you by the InterAstra Institute, the global public square for the business of space. Join us at interastra.space. It was a long time coming, that encounter. I think that's what really heightened that feeling of this is something mythical and almost unbelievable because I've been wanting to see a seahorse. I mean, genuinely, one of the things that fascinated me enormously about the underwater world were these little hidden extraordinary creatures that just look like they've been made up you know they look like a fairy tale mixture of creatures and are they really real it was i mean i wasn't really questioning that but it just it that moment where i did finally see one it was a mixture of at last they are here and it's one of those feelings and i, I often get this with different things underwater when you just i've just felt this enormous sense of privilege to be in that spot at that time when that animal happens to be there too I am the only person to have walked in space and gone to the deepest point in the ocean. Hi, I'm Kathy Sullivan, and I'm an explorer. Exploring doesn't always have to involve going to some remote or exotic place. It simply requires your commitment to put curiosity into action. So join me on this podcast journey as I reflect on lessons learned from life so far and from my brilliant and ever inquisitive guests. We'll explore together in this very moment from right where you are. Spaceship not required. Welcome to Kathy Sullivan Explores. Before we take off, I have a gift for you. I believe that no matter where you are today, an active thirst for knowledge will help unlock your ability to live a life of meaning and happiness. So I'm sharing some lessons I've learned on my road less traveled. Over at kathysullivanexplores.com, you'll find my seven astronaut tips to improving your life on Earth. When you sign up, I'll send them to you and also make sure you're the first to discover future podcast episodes and learn more about exciting adventures ahead. Just head on over to kathysullivanexplorers.com. It was as if I had seen a unicorn trotting through my garden. That's how my guest today describes her first encounter with a seahorse in the wild. Helen Scales' fascination with the sea began on childhood trips to the seashore in Cornwall, England. An ad for a free introduction to scuba diving opened her eyes to the delight of being underwater among the fish, rather than stuck on the shore, and set her course to become a marine biologist, specializing in tropical reefs. She has lived in seven countries and dived in the waters of countless more, one of the perks of a career in oceanography. Helen is the unusual scientist who is also a good storyteller, bringing the wonders of the sea to us in print and via the airwaves. She has written seven books about the sea, most recently, The Brilliant Abyss, a sweeping and brilliantly written survey of the deep sea floor and the wondrous creatures that live there. Helen Scales, so delighted to have you on the show with me today. Kathy, it's a huge pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. You and I have many things in common, but the central one is a real love of the ocean. Yours got started somewhat earlier than mine, according to your biography. Tell me where that first early love, what your first memory is of loving the ocean. Was it family vacations or school or where did that come from? 
It was family vacations. Yes, it was. I grew up in Surrey, which is a suburban landlocked county in the UK, just uh, southwest of London. So not, not really an ocean too close, although, you know, I live on an island. You're never too far away from the ocean when you're in, in the UK, I guess, on a continental scale, which you guys kind of have to f figure out uh, over your side of the Atlantic. But uh, yeah, so the ocean wasn't on my doorstep as I was growing up. But I was very lucky that my family and my mother in particular have a very strong connection to Cornwall, to the southwestern tip of the UK that sticks out, the toe that sticks out into the Atlantic. She had spent uh, her childhood growing up on sort of vacation summer times down there with her family. And, um, and later in life, I think with some money left by my grandmother, we bought a tiny little stone damp cottage uh, in the middle of Cornwall on the edge of this wild moor, kind of midway between the north and south coast. So we had the coast within a short drive. So it was very normal for me to spend pretty much every time I wasn't at school, whether it was Christmas, holidays, Easter and summer, we would go down to Cornwall and uh, we would be in our little place. And my favorite times were always the ones when we went to the coast to explore the beaches and the, and the sea life. So I guess that for me, yeah, it was just normal. I would always have that memory of these wild Atlantic, cold, quite often gray, quite often wild waves <laughs> of this part of the ocean was where I, I guess, yeah, had all my first experiences of, of the salt water, the creatures, the exploration. Um, yeah, that's where it was. Was it the sense of the sea or the glory and beauty of the shore or some particular critters in tide pools that really set the hook on your interest? Looking back, I think it was probably the tide pools and the looking for creatures side of things. I, mean, I always loved the, I have always, I think now looking back as well, really loved that sensation of being at the coast, the smell, that enticing, you know, you step out of the car and you're, you're there because you can smell it or you, I mean, we always played that game of who can see the sea first as you're driving in, catching that glimpse of the horizon for the first time. But then I guess once I'm there, once I'm out of the car and, you know, running around, I would make a beeline for those, yeah, little tide pools, the pools of water with creatures and hunting for snails and shells and whatever I could find. So I think it was for me, I think it was, it was exploring the hidden side of the beach too and trying to find stuff that would reveal itself to me when I was rummaging around in those places. Did you collect them and take them back to the cottage in jars or did you just leave them there and, and marvel at their presence? I mostly left things there, I think. I remember I went through a phase of kind of wanting to draw and paint these things. So I did used to kind of go through a phase of collecting shells, bringing them back to the house, painting them is in like, not on themselves, but on, on paper. Uh, watercolors was what I was up to then at that stage with my art. And then take, I think I would take them back as well. I'm sure there's probably some jars of odds and ends of shells here and there in the house somewhere still, but uh, most, I wasn't the kind of, I wasn't kind of trying to hoard them. That wasn't for me. I wasn't trying to bring them back. I think for me, it was the odd one here or there, maybe with some idea to like trying to render them myself on the page, but mostly being there was the thing for me, I think. Yeah. So you had an artistic side and an artistic family influences. Were there any scientific family influences driving that part of your interest? I think so. My mother was a ma is a mathematician and you know that's what she studied at university. So if we stretch the definition of science to math, which I think we should, um, then yes, she always had that kind of interest. And in fact, later in life, she told me she did consider becoming an oceanographer. There was a phase in her life when she was thinking of doing that, but that, that path didn't eventually open up to her. So I guess it is in there. I mean, and I should say I have two sisters. My older and younger sisters are both scientists as well. Uh, my older sister, again, a mathematician. That's the way she went, although she took her maths off into a into the into the natural world she sort of was a modeler and looking at understanding 
changes in the in the living world through mathematics. And my younger sister, she is an oceanographer. So there's definitely something in the family <laughs> along the ocean line. <laughs> Cornwall had its way, it sounds like. <laughs> I think it did, yes, yes. But you did your schooling in Surrey, southwest of London. Somehow around age 16, was that when you first got to scuba dive? What brought yes. that about and made that possible? Yeah, I hadn't had it cemented in my mind yet at that point. So 14, 15, I was very green minded as a kid at that point. At, at that point, I think I did. I did think I was going to become a rainforest biologist. And I think I bored my friends silly because at that point, being an eco nut and a greeny kid wasn't really mainstream. And there wasn't many others like me who were very concerned about the environment. Um, we're talking kind of early 90s when I remember very vividly being very passionate about the Rio Earth Summit, for example, and hearing about the Amazon rainforest being burnt down. And I became vegetarian and probably completely unbearable to a lot of my friends going on about these things, but that was where my passion lay. So that was, that was there for a while, but then I think the ocean, it did just kind of like lap at my thoughts a lot. And I did think that I'd like to have a go at being under the water and kind of in an abstract sense. And then in a very real sense, the opportunity came along. A friend and I noticed that our local swimming pool in Surrey, long way from the ocean, but they were offering a free scuba try dive. Um, it was a club that would then go on to train us, but we just first of all decided we'd go along and jump in a swimming pool and have a go. And we just loved it, loved that sensation of being fish. The first moment I put my head under the water and was like, I'm breathing, but the water is above my head what's going on and I really loved that. So we signed up, we signed up for classes and for the next, uh, it was in our last two years of, of high school, we would go along once a week to the local pool and we would jump in and they would train us in the next levels of, of diving and, and we were trained very well. It was this, the British um, Sub Aqua Club were very thorough training for British waters as well, you know, challenging conditions that we then eventually got to when we got out into the open waters. But yeah, so I, I think it, I, I think I knew I did want to dive, but it was just seeing that and having that chance really by chance. You know, I love to swim. I think we just noticed one time when we were swimming, there was a sign up saying, you know, do you want to come try diving? And we were like, sure, let's do it. And I was hooked. <laughs> Where did your green influence and interest come from? Is it traceable to something in your environment or to the news of the Rio summit or? I think it's a mixture of specifically at that time in the early 90s, I think it was, you know, it was a real rise of green awareness among certain people. And I think I was definitely one of those. But I think it's, it stems back further than that. My mother, again, is and was always a very nature minded, thoughtful, ecological person. And I'm very sure that that influence has come through very strongly to me. And, you know, she was always the voice of care and wonder at the the living planet um, of ours in all ways. I mean, she she didn't have a sort of particular part of it that was what she cared of the most, but I think she brought us all up to really respect and to be interested and want to know more about nature and how it works and, and the problems that are out there. So I think it's a mixture of her guidance, but in a very soft, gentle way, not she wasn't pushing me at all, but I think it just became part of, it was just normal for me to be thinking about those things and to have that influence around me. And then, yeah, the news, and these sort of shocking stories that were coming up in the in in the news about yeah specifically things like deforestation i think it was only late, later on after i learned to dive that i was really looking into the ocean and seeing more and more the problems that were happening there but yeah i think i was really driven by this very teenage angsty kind of need to do something or to try and be involved in trying to to make these things better i guess yeah yeah the duke of edinburgh award seems to have been something that was pretty pivotal in your academic development. 
most of my listeners are Americans, so won't know much about that award, how one gets it, what it means. Tell us about that. What is it? How did you get it? And uh, did it play the kind of influence in your life that it struck me? Perhaps it did. Absolutely. I, maybe I should have mentioned it already. In fact, this whole scuba diving thing was was p partly for the Duke of Edinburgh Awards. So ah. um, yeah, it's a scheme that was set up by the late Duke of Edinburgh. And the idea is to give young people, I think up to the age of early 20s, you can do this this uh, this award. And there's various different levels. You take it through different different medals. You get your bronze, your silver and your gold. It's sort of offering an opportunity to get hands-on experience in all sorts of things. So it was very interdisciplinary and you had different categories of things you need to do. I, I kind of see it it's sort of a similar way to, I guess, a parallel perhaps to the scouting organization or girl guides. You didn't sort of have that same sense maybe of belonging to a group of people who re regularly met up and did things together but it was more of an individual pursuit so you would you know you would go off and you would I think it was like I think you had to do something that was skillful so that could be music or art or but it was something outside of your school curriculum that you would do and pursue and there was various ways of measuring that kind of progress that you would take at different levels there was a sports section I think there was a community service section there was an expedition and that was a very exciting part we were we were trained in small groups so would that was a small group kind of endeavor and go off and and hike basically and uh, eventually at the gold level it was quite a decent hike I forget how much we had to do it was so good I think I don't know if we did 20 miles a day. I forget now. In some of the more challenging places in the UK, some of the more challenging outdoor spaces, I remember going for some wild hikes up in the North Yorkshire Moors on some pretty bad weather and things like that. So, you know, that kind of outdoor pursuit was part of it. And I think, yeah, I think the scuba for me was coming under the sports section. So I think that was partly it when my friend ah. and I saw these classes, we were like, oh, hey, you know, that'll be our gold Duke of Edinburgh ticked. You know, not that that was why we did it, but it was a good, you know, it, it, it became part of this this award that you eventually get for kind of fulfilling various different aspects of adventure and skill and, and so so forth. So, so yeah, I think... I guess it channeled my kind of feelings towards doing a bit of everything. And actually that sums up, I guess, my childhood pretty well. I was sure I was someone who was interested in science and exploration, but I also loved art and I also loved music and sports. And, and that was all the things that I tried to pursue as much as I could at that age. So it was yeah, a really wonderful thing. And it's still, you know, it's a program that still runs um, and it does offer, I think, a lot of opportunities for trying out lots of different things and, and taking it to a pretty high level as well. Was that all in your high school age, in your case, sort of up before 18-ish? That's right. Yes. So it was in, it was like, certainly, I mean, we started with the early levels, I guess, probably aged more like 13. And we sort of went through the different from bronze to silver and then to gold. And the gold was generally a kind of, yeah, late teens kind of thing you would do. You've become quite a writer and we'll come to that further down in the conversation. But in an interview, you commented, uh, you said, I was busy being a marine biologist when out from inside me climbed a writer and a speaker. Were you already interested in music and art and other things? Were there any hints of that writer being hidden inside you at this age? Nope, <laughs> not at all. <laughs> I mean, I wasn't bad. And I think, actually, no, maybe that's not quite fair. I guess I was always a big letter writer. And a diarist, actually, as well. I would write long diaries in my teens and, and younger, too. So maybe that was the hint. Maybe that was the hint. But I never considered it to be anything particularly well-written or interesting for anyone else to read. I just liked communicating that way. And then also, this was back in the day when, to keep in touch with my friends during school vacations, we didn't have 
anything. I mean, we could pick up the phone and speak to each other, but often we would write letters. And I really like, I've kept those letters. I'm a big keeper of letters as well. I have huge boxes of ones I've sent. And I had a lifelong uh, friend in Canada and we would send letters across the Atlantic to each other, you know, all the way through childhood. So I think at some point we must get together and I know she kept hers and I've kept mine. And, you know, it's a lovely record of life. I think those sorts of details that you write down in a long handwritten letter, which I miss. I don't do it anymore. Not really. Occasionally I think I should do it and I, you know, get back to it. But everything else is so much easier, you know, emails and everything else we have. So I guess that was it. But I never, I never considered myself a skilled writer. I did okay in English at high school. I was fine, but I never considered myself to be top of the class by any means. Whereas I kind of was in science and some of the other things I, I, I did stand out a bit more in terms of that, that sort of stuff, but never English. So it was a real surprise actually. It, and enjoying it, I think is the thing that surprised me. I didn't expect to find it such a, an enjoyable and joyous pursuit to write words and stories down, which was a wonderful thing to find out in my mid twenties. <laughs> Very much because you know, many writers, of course, many authors write about how difficult it is and how grueling it is to chain yourself to the chair and your, your hands to the keyboard until something comes out. Oh, I have that too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. No, I, I don't think it's escapable. <laughs> so you've, you're Duke of Edinburgh gold. Uh, you're kind of adventurous and artistic. No, you've loved the ocean. Now you've discovered how cool it is to be able to breathe underwater. How did that determine or shape your course from high school onward? Was it clear right then that that's what I want to do, combine science and ocean and the ability to be a fish? Pretty much. I think you've nailed it, actually. That certainly when I left high school, as I went on to do more studies, it was very much in my mind, like be the fish as much as possible, basically. Explore and be in the ocean with any opportunity. And that really did drive me. I mean, in the early years, I took any chance I could or made any chance I could to, to travel, to work overseas to experience and explore different corners of the ocean. I was very, I was strongly drawn to the tropics and to coral reefs. I mean, simply because of course they are beautiful and, and, you know, diverse and so important. And I think as I've gone on, I've really expanded my views to other parts of the oceans, but it was a, a very driven pursuit of that particular place, all those particular places, that ecosystem that drove me in those early years. And even part of me feels like, was I too narrow-minded? But actually maybe not, maybe, maybe I personally needed that drive to that thing, that place I wanted to go to, to get me there. Uh, and then I kind of broadened out later on, but it was very much, you know, off I went. I think it was a day after maybe I got my school high, high school exam results and I found that I got my grades to get into Cambridge. The day or two after that, I, I left for Belize and took myself off overseas for the first time to the tropics. It was my first tropical expedition and went diving for three months. So, you know, I knew that's where I wanted to go. And aside from a few days of dreadful homesickness when I got there, which all seemed suddenly like this was a terrible idea, I got through that and realized it was the idea I had in my mind originally. But it was, you know, sometimes you don't quite get there immediately when you've worked so hard to get somewhere and then you realize, oh gosh, it's really quite difficult and different as to how I expected. But I, I settled into that and it was wonderful. And then, yeah, I guess on from there, I've been incredibly lucky to to combine the science and the exploration and travel for many different um, expeditions and and eventually after more study jobs overseas. Um, I've shared experiences my, with my then husband who came along partway through all of these adventures and and he's not a marine biologist but he dives and now dives a lot more than he was before we met. <laughs> and, uh, and so we uh, make opportunities to go places together. 
and you know combine our research and now with my writing too that that's a pretty movable piece too which is nice so we can yeah. kind of mush things together yeah i want to come back to that jaunt off to belize tell me more about that was that you went off on your own had you managed to latch onto an expedition yeah, I was on an expedition. So it was early days of when I think it's really quite common these days for you to sort of join a, a an organization, an NGO that has put together teams of people to go and train diving. And I was already a diver at that point, but I was, um, you know, so I joined a small team and, and we were all based uh, on a little island together and we had this work schedule put in front of us. So it was really, for me, I didn't sort of spearhead that research or that place. You know, I was joining a, an existing group. So, I, but I think for me at that stage, it was exactly what I needed to get a taste of being in the tropics and doing this kind of research. And I loved it. I really did. I got a real sense of working in teams with wonderful people who were there too, similar minded kind of conservationists. I think it's big business now, these sort of conservation some of them slip towards a bit more kind of ecotourism, which is, you know, which is fine. I guess it depends on, on what you want out of it. And I think it was early days of those sorts of organizations. So was this like doing research or teaching Belizeans to dive or bringing Westerners down to Belize to have the experience and appreciate it? What, what yeah. mix of motives was driving that? So it was a mixture. Yeah, we at that stage, the expedition I was on, we were a team of basically we were surveying, mapping out coral reefs. So our, our ambition was to over. I mean, this was a long project. It wasn't just my three months. It would run on and on and more people would join. And I think it was an early plans to get basically kind of basic habitat maps for the Turnerf Atoll, one of the largest atolls, I think, in the Caribbean. And what we were doing was we would just go down and we would be mapping out the coral and the fish populations, coral um, habitat and so on. And then that was going to be fed into this management plan. So I think it was a very specific goal in mind in terms of the science. They just needed to know what was there. And we were basically the, I was going to say the grunt force that, you know, the workers, but it was pretty good work. It's not a bad thing to be diving and counting fish, <laughs> no. but you know, someone's got to do it, right? Um, <laughs> so that's what we were doing. But at the same time, they, there was a program a part of that program did involve getting Belizeans to come and join us and they were trained up. And so we worked alongside Belizean scholars as well. So yeah, it was a mixture of, I guess probably it was like us Western kids were coming in and probably the money we were paying was helping to cover the costs of those guys. And then we all worked together on these mapping projects, uh, this mapping project around the atoll. So I think, you know, still I could go back to the map and be like, this is the bit that I surveyed, you know, it wasn't, it's a huge, great big thing, but we you know this was the, these were the three months that I was here and we, we worked our way along. But the idea, and we, we helped to sort of set up a, a research station on Calabash Key, which is still there. It's, I think it's still run by the university. So I think a lot of it was aimed at increasing the, the manpower, I guess, the infrastructure, the training of people in Belize, you know, to leave that kind of uh, capacity building. Behind. Capacity, yeah. exactly. That's the word I'm thinking for. Capacity building. Yeah. So it was great. I, I love your comment about the first few days of homesickness. I've I've concluded that one of life's little tricks is to lure you in with the sort of gleam in your eye of something you know you want to do. And kind of only once you've stepped across the threshold and into it, do you discover what it's actually going to cost and take to deliver on it? It's like, ah, oh, suckered again. <laughs> yes. Yes. And it took me quite a while to learn that too, because the first few times, Belize was the first time when I was really hit. Like, so you can imagine this like white kid coming from London, from Southwest London, who'd never been anywhere hotter than about 25 degrees at that point. Oh, I need to do that in Fahrenheit. Sorry. Okay. Well, just not very hot. 75. Yeah. <laughs> 75. I'm really bad at converting. Thrown into this hot, sweaty, tropical country with everything is new and crazy. So, you know, it was, it was a huge challenge personally, but you got over it. But it did take a few more trips of the same thing happening for me to be like, oh, no, wait, hang on. Even though I know what it's going to be like, it's still a challenge. And I still have to sit through this first bit. 
But now it's sort of reassuring myself. It is going to be fine because it always has been fine, you know, up yeah. until this point. And there'll be different challenges. But, you know, even if, yeah, I guess it's re just realizing you're not supposed to love it from the first, first minute. It doesn't work that way. Keep your eye on that beacon, that yeah. beam that drew you in first uh, and, yeah. and keep going for it. So you had a bit of a back and forth career, as I understand it, academically with some of the NGO work in parallel with, or, or was it sort of taking time out from universities and going back and forth between formal studies and field work? Tell me about your journey from the Belize expedition to your PhD. Yeah, sure. So I guess it was a bit of back and forth between different degrees. And some of it was just in vacation time during undergraduate. Yeah, I took a year between high school and my first degree. So that was um, that was my decision to to go off and have basically yeah to go and dive as much as possible and to go and see the world and so I did that. I spent time also in Australia. Wonderful thing I enjoyed. I think the highlight well two things really. One was working on the west coast on Ningaloo Reef, working with whale sharks. There was a whale shark research project and kind of monitoring tourism and so on going over there. So I spent quite a bit of time out that way. That wasn't with Brad Norman by any chance. It was, yes. <laughs> in, in association, he was around. I'm not yeah. sure if I actually worked. I think there were a few days where I worked with him. He was definitely around. I was actually, I was with the, the government organization that's now changed. It was called the Conservation and Land Management Group at that point. I think it's something else now. But he was around. Yeah, we would we did have some days on the boats together. So that was fun. Yeah, so I did some, I did that. And that the northwest corner of Australia, right? That's Ningaloo. Right. Yeah. Ningaloo. It's a really, I mean, it's a very special place for me. I've been back since and, you know, it's the lesser known. I've seen it all, but never been able to dive there. <laughs> I do. If you ever get a chance. I mean, it's, I mean, it's, it's a very different, a very, very different place to the Barrier Reef, which I then did go to the Barrier Reef after Ningaloo. And I, I dived there a good deal and, and also off the coast in the Coral Sea, which was extraordinary. But Ningaloo is just, I mean, it's accessible. It's a fringing reef. So you can just, and, and it's got a beautiful national park along the coast where camping is just, is fantastic. And you can just flop in the water and snorkel and see wonderful things or go off, off the coast a bit further and see these beautiful whale sharks, which still are coming and are just still extraordinary. So yeah, it was wonderful to be there. It's very close to my heart. And yeah, and then I did, I did some stuff on the East Coast too, um, which was great. So yeah, I guess there was a year of exploring. Then I went to university, to Cambridge and um, studied hard as, as a zoologist. And each, each of the school vacations, the high university vacations, I also went off and took myself to different parts of the ocean to study and to do that sort of work. So I was in California for one summer, I was in the Philippines for one summer. And then after I graduated, I then went off and did a master's course. I decided, because I only, I did zoology in Cambridge. There isn't a, a marine science as it is right. um, program. Although I did end up doing a dissertation on the trade in corals. So I you know I, I tried as I could to kind of specialize, but, um, but I, you know, Cambridge was where I decided to go and, and there's, you know, it's, it's, an, it's a broad science course you do, that you do there. So I did a master's degree. I went up to Newcastle University and, and I studied tropical marine biology up there. And that led on to my first job. Coles to Newcastle and tropical reefs. How is there a tropical <laughs> biology department at Newcastle? Yes. You're very good. You're very good for pointing that out. Well noted. Yeah, there's just a great marine science department up there and, and a bunch of people who specialize in the tropics. I mean, I do remember it was an it was um, a great master's course with uh, people who came from all over the world and including guys from Hong Kong and uh, for various different countries. But I do remember we did have to do some training 
practical training of survey techniques. And we did it up in Newcastle. You know, I should say this is Northern England. If those of you who don't know where Newcastle is, you know, it's Northern England. It's, you know, it's a lovely part of the country, but it was, it's hardly tropical. I mean, it really isn't very warm. It's very grey northeast coast of England. <laughs> exactly. And we did have this day, I forget what time of year it was, but we were taken out on the university's boat. They have a, a research vessel that we went out on just for the day. And it was rough as anything. It really was this extraordinarily cold, rough day. And I just remember the look on my friend's face, the guy who'd come from Hong Kong. And he's like, I signed up for tropical biology. What is this about? <laughs> this is <laughs> not what I was expecting. A rough day on the North Sea. He was having the reverse of your first experience in Belize. So. He's never been somewhere that cold and gray. Exactly. Yeah, he has. I mean, it did not on this boat, luckily, but another time it did snow and it was the first snowfall we'd ever seen. So that was quite fun. It was a real bringing together of different things. True, I studied for most of the year in Newcastle, but then I did then spend four months at the end of it in Malaysia for my dissertation. So, uh, so off I went there. And then that led to my first job, actually. So I, I was, I think... Looking back, I think a lot of the times things I've done, have, they've been just quite fortunate things that have fitted one to the next. And maybe it wasn't exactly planned that way. It certainly wasn't planned that way, but it happened and opportunities came along and I would say, yes, and let's do it. And this is one of them. I went to Malaysia for the research, I think, because I traveled there. Actually, after graduating, I went out and had some time with some friends and we just traveled around Southeast Asia for fun. And I ended up really liking Malaysia and seeing some interesting questions about what was happening in some of the islands there in terms of tourism, because it seemed to me that tourism was increasing very rapidly there, but without really much infrastructure to look after waste management, for example, things like that. And I was seeing really terrible kind of pollution happening at that point. And this was back in the uh, late 90s. Were you having to make those all work trips? I mean, or cheap college Malaysia on $2 a day post-college kind of trips or... Tell me more about that experience, because yeah. you know, cobbling something together to travel shortly out of college is, for most people, quite an endeavor. Yeah, I guess it was. That one was a cheap trip. The, the one straight after graduating was a flight and uh, and then just kind of making it happen and traveling pretty cheaply through Southeast Asia. So, yeah, it was a, I was lucky because I had, well... Yeah, I had friends who wanted to travel out there and actually a boyfriend who was studying in China and he we kind of met out there and he was already over that way. And so we we all just had a kind of post-graduation uh, final trip around. It was six weeks, I think. It was, a, it was an amazing trip. It was a wonderful, wonderful eye-opening trip. But I think, and I guess it, it was that that time of backpacking around that did make me think I would like to come back uh, and start looking in more detail at some of these issues of, of what's going on on these islands and, and how tourism is, is developing. And so I ended up doing, yeah, I guess it was another one of the sort of things I did often, which was be slightly cheeky and just write to people and say, hi, can I come and... Can I come and survey your reef or can I come and see your whale sharks? That's how the whale shark thing happened. I, I watched a TV documentary about whale sharks in Ningaloo and I was like, actually, quite fancy that. And I managed to find someone to write to. I think I even wrote a letter because it was letter writing at that point and said, can I come? And they said, yes. That's fabulous. <laughs> well, what's what's the worst that can happen? They say, yeah. actually, no, we'd rather not. Yeah, or you don't hear back, whatever. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. So the Malaysia thing, the work for me happened I found out that uh, the WWF, the World Wildlife Fund, we did quite a lot of work out there. They have an office out in, in Kuala Lumpur and they were doing quite a lot of marine work. And I think I, I just wrote to them and said, well, look, I've got this, I have this time as part of my master's to spend. And I would, and I got some money from the university for this. So that was funded through, through college, you know, to come and study somewhere. And I'd like to come to Malaysia. And I think this is an interesting question about tourism. And they were like, oh, actually, we've got to put, you know, we want to know more about this particular island, Palau Tioman. And we would really like you to come and 
survey the reefs and and talk to the tourism sector and figure out what's going on. So I did that. I spent, I guess, three months out there and they helped me out with accommodation. And, you know, I think I bought my flight and that was about it. And everything else was covered by WWF. And that was great. And then um, at the end of that, the person I was working for as a volunteer, just for my my master's, then said, well, you know, there's this other island on the other side of Malaysia, which we also would like to know more about. And we have a little bit of money to pay you about $5 a day, probably it would be if you want to come back and just run this project for a year. And we'll pay your accommodation and you'll have to fly out. So I had to race. It was kind of, I'm pretty much broke even, I'm sure, over that first year of working. It was not a lucrative time of my life, but, you know, it was the experience I had. And they just said, yeah, come back. And so I then became, you know, the uh, the field biologist I'd always dreamed of. And um, it was challenging again uh, in different ways, very different ways. But I did it. And it was that was the beginning to being able to call myself, I guess, a, a marine scientist. It felt like I was actually running running the show at that point. And that was before my PhD. So that was cool. So I did that for a year in Langkawi and uh, tried to survey reefs, even though mostly I couldn't see them because the water was very cloudy. It was not my expectation. Yes. Were you working on your own or with some other Westerners or Malaysians or? We had a very small team. There was a couple, I think coming and going, there's one or two other Malaysians who would come out. I actually ended up working a lot with, with my then boyfriend because he was also a marine scientist. He was on the same master's as me. And I basically kind of said, well, could I bring him too? <laughs> and then when the WWF offered me this, <laughs> this job and he, they said, sure, we can stretch it to $10 a day. Go for it. So off we went. So you're proving the power of notice an interesting question yeah. and then dare to ask someone about how to pursue it. Yeah. But you had made a good observation that there were questions about the tourism that deserved some follow-up. You you brought something with you to that to that equation. I hope yeah. so. Hopefully I did. Yeah. It was certainly a huge learning curve for me. The practicalities of doing conservation and looking after these places in these in different countries and so on. So no, it was it was an interesting time. It was. Yeah. So finish up at Newcastle and does the next thing fall into place naturally or so the now newcastle finished i spent that year following that in in malaysia um that was leading up to yeah sort of a, a year later i was then thinking what next i'd had always had a phd in mind i mean i was thinking of doing a phd straight after um, my first degree and there was some very poss- some possibilities at that point but then the you know it went off in a slightly different direction with the masters and that and then you know i thought i'd come back and in fact came back to cambridge but had other ideas of working again in Malaysia, but a slightly different part of it. So, so far I'd been working on the peninsula. So around, around that Western part. And I'd always kind of dreamed about going to Sabah across to Borneo, where there are in some places and in one particular place I managed to end up in some really extraordinarily diverse and pristine reefs, very different to the ones I was serving near to the, the mainland in Langkawi. I came back, I mean, I was very lucky. I mean, again, a real, I guess the sign of, well, I've always worked very hard. I've been a real one of those people who gets a huge kick out of doing very well when you've worked and studied and you get to sit an exam and, and do well in it. And I always loved that feeling. So I did do very well in my final year of undergraduate, which meant that I could, I mean, this is it. This is the thing which means a lot to me was that I could pretty much just go back to my college in Cambridge at that point and say, hey, I'd like to do a PhD. And they said, sure, here's some money. So I got funded by them for four years, which ah. is extraordinary to do that. So basically, you know, they were like, here, you know, here's the fund, here's money to live on, here's the fees, go do your work for four years. It's a good thing to point out, I think, to many, many listeners may not know this, but 
that's not an uncommon thing in the sciences in the U.S. and Canada as well, mm-hmm. that you are a research fellow and a research associate mm-hmm. in the department and some sizable proportion, oftentimes all you would need of your expenses, living expenses and academic fees are covered. So you, yeah. you can yeah. end up with a postgraduate degree and not an added burden of debt. That's true. And that is an important thing, I think, especially if it's the sort of barrier that might dissuade people from wanting to go into science, thinking, oh, you know, it's going to be all voluntary or it's all going to be me paying everything. But yeah, if you study hard and you want to do it, there are those opportunities and it's wonderful. I was so lucky to come out of my, you know, I now have I have three degrees and I had very little debt. You know, I really it's getting harder and harder in the UK, at least, to do that, um, but not unheard of by any means, you know, and there is wonderful research programs out there, wonderful people, academics out there wanting new, bright, wonderful students to bring up and, and put, you know, be the next generation and find ways of supporting them and getting money for them and making it realistic as a career prospect from that point onwards. Yeah. yeah. My original career goal was to find someone who would buy me airplane tickets because I'm, I'm sort of a geographer, I think, mostly at heart. And the sciences, at least the earth sciences, are also quite a good key to that sort of life. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've always been over the years looking out for ways of getting the plane ticket paid for. I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> um, and uh, Various people over the years have done so. I mean, luck- I've been very lucky as well to get supported by organizations like the Royal Geographical Society here in London that at various points in my career have have paid my way to interesting places which is a wonderful thing too. And the most recently, my husband and I got a grant to go to Madagascar together and we spent eight weeks in the tiny remote Bay of Assassins in the southwest corner of Madagascar studying mangroves, um, wow. all thanks to the RGS. So thank you to them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I want to come back to one particular part of your scuba experience and ask you, tell me when this is in the flow of events you've told us about so far and take me into that moment again. You've mentioned this moment in an interview you did with The Economist, I think. It was your first encounter with the seahorse. And you commented to The Economist that it was like glimpsing a unicorn trotting through my garden. Tell (laughs) us about that. Tell me about that encounter, where and when and yes, which seahorse was it and what do you remember? Yes, it was a long time coming, that encounter. I think that's what really heightened that feeling of this is something mythical and almost unbelievable because I've been wanting to see a seahorse. I mean, genuinely, one of the things that fascinated me enormously about the underwater world were these little hidden, extraordinary creatures that just look like they've been made up. You know, they look like a fairy tale mixture of creatures and are they really real? It was, I mean, I wasn't really questioning that, but it just, it, that moment where I did finally see one, it was a mixture of, at last, they are here. And it's, one of those feelings, and I, I often get this with different things underwater, when you just, I've just felt this enormous sense of privilege to be in that spot at that time when that animal happens to be there too. It lets me into its world for a few moments or a few minutes or however long I'm lucky to see it for. And, you know, just this enormous sense of, ch- like, I put myself here and I didn't know what was going to be here. And along comes this wonderful creature to show itself to me. And I just love that. And the seahorse was, was one of those things. Um, it was in Vietnam. It was actually while I was researching the, my first book, I decided I wanted to write about seahorses almost, almost because of this feeling of like these wonderful creatures I'd never seen. And surely if I, if I write a book about them, I'm going to have to see one. There's no way I'm going to go through this without seeing one of these creatures, these magical things. 
So I was in Vietnam. I was actually there to study and to research the trade in seahorses, which at that time was really quite rampant in Vietnam. I think there are some more controls there since then, but shrimp trawlers were really taking a lot of bycatch, and I'm sure they still are, but um, collecting seahorses if they caught them incidentally and trading them onto China as Chinese medicines. So I was there to look into that, but I had a few days at the end of the trip and I thought, well, you know, I'd, and I had seen a lot of dead seahorses, sadly, that were being trawled, but I wanted to see them in the wild for real. So I, w I did do some dives and we saw one. And yeah, it was that kind of strange mixture of feelings when I finally did see it of this extraordinary joy, but also just incredible peace and satisfaction of, oh, finally, here we go. Um, here's this this animal I wanted to see for so long, and and it was really hard as well because the seahorse seahorses aren't very fast swimming things. Usually you'll find them that just I think the one I saw was actually asleep. It wasn't really moving, and it just was sitting there with its tail curled around a piece of coral, and it was just it was fairly oblivious to me. So I had to say goodbye. Like I wasn't going to sit and wait for it to swim off because it wasn't going anywhere. And you know <laughs> normally if it's a shark or a manta ray or a turtle, you know you you grasp you. You grasp onto the moments you have in its company and you know it's going to swim off without you. Um, but the seahorse was just going to stay there and I yeah. couldn't stay there because my air was going to run out. So I had to <laughs> finally reach the moment of sort of saying goodbye to the seahorse and turn my back and, and swim off. But it was, yeah, I always remember this bright orange little thing had a little black kind of saddle on its back. And it was just sitting on the seabed looking very peaceful. And I think I think for a moment I was like, oh, is it okay? Is it actually alive? And then I was like, no, 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 no it's fine. It's just sleeping. It's okay. Yeah, they, <laughs> they do just tend to hang out coiled around a bit of coral yeah. or something. Yeah. Exactly. You said they are traded for Chinese medicines, not, yes. they're not, not aquarium critters, but to grind up and turn into some, what is, what is the perceived use of them? Yeah, so they, it goes back a couple of hundred years of this uh, idea of them being an, an, a medicinal ingredient. In fact, even the Romans had ideas that seahorses had some potent powers. There are kind of um, recipes that if you take a seahorse and you burn it, you take the ashes and you mix it with goose fat and you rub it on a bald head, then, you know, your hair is going to grow back or some nonsense like that. That's the Romans, um, but it's been a, a traditional Chinese medicine. Seahorse has been there for in textbooks for, for quite a, many centuries. But now it's becoming much more popular to have them as an ingredient. Um, you know, it's one of a mixed ingredient in these sorts of um, remedies that are prescribed or people decide they want to take. And often the seahorse, well, now they're kind of famous for being this promoter of vigor and, uh, you know, and masculinity perhaps or, or sexual fervor, that kind of thing. So, you know, I saw them on sale in Vietnam, actually, at pairs of seahorses, two of them kind of tied together as if you're male, female pairs. This is what's going to be all the more potent for you if you take these. And I think, yeah, they're kind of boiled down into a tea or something and taken that way. And in Vietnam as well, the fishermen I spent time with, they would take the small ones, which were too little to trade. They weren't worth anything. And they would stick them in a bottle of vodka. And they said oh. to me, oh, yes, this gives me strength overnight when I'm fishing. <laughs> so, and I, I do think, I mean, I mean, science, Western scientists have looked at seahorses and looked at their, what they're made up of, their chemical makeup, and there's nothing scientifically obvious about them that is useful. You know, we find loads of wonderful chemistry in the oceans, in animals that is really useful, that has got potent medicinal properties and so on. But just not in the seahorse, not really. I think it, I, I think it really stems from the way they look. You see these little baby dragons and it's easy to imagine that they would have these powers, yeah. maybe. So unfortunately, you know, there is a growing trend and a growing trade in seahorses. Um, there is some aquarium trade as well, but I think the bulk of it is this, the trade in dried dead seahorses coming into China. And it's coming from all over the world now. That, since I wrote my book, actually, the trade has expanded to new countries. 
they're sort of tapping into these networks of trading and people are working really hard. There's a wonderful project in uh, University of British Columbia, um, Project Seahorse, who are working really hard, working with fishers, trying to make fishing more sustainable, not necessarily campaigning for a ban on seahorse trading, but let's try to make it better and try to eliminate the the damage that things like trawling is causing to the whole of the ecosystem, not just seahorses. Yeah, yeah. That book, by the way, is Poseidon's Steed. It's next <laughs> on my list to read. Thank you, Kathy. <laughs> the book I read in preparation for this interview is your more recent one, The Brilliant Abyss, exploring the majestic hidden life of the deep ocean and the looming threat that imperils it. And it is such a fabulous book. Kudos on a, a wonderful piece of work. One thing you wrote struck me, it raises a quandary or a mystery that I've labored over a lot, as many people have. It's about why there is this fervor, or this is what I read into the, the bit, maybe you didn't mean it, but there's such a clamor and fervor and common shared joy and excitement around going into space. I mean, witnessed just recently Sir Richard Branson completing his first tourist flight. And you write in the abyss, the deep has no stars at night to remind us it is there and no moon shining down. And yet this hidden place reaches into our daily lives and makes vital things happen without our knowing. That's just such a wonderful phrase. But I'm curious if you've ever thought about what other factors, if any, lead to this sense of the sea as out of sight, out of mind for so much of humanity. And yet everyone much more dazzled and intrigued by outer space. What is that? It's such an eternal thing, I think, as well. I guess maybe maybe not entirely out of sight. I guess the other side of it is the dreaming of what might be in the ocean. And I guess that's a human trait that goes back a huge long way as well, as sort of the, what's in those hidden spaces. And often it's a fear. And I know a lot of people who are still pretty scared of the idea of what's, if they go swimming in water they can't touch the bottom of, they're really scared of what's below them and what might come up and brush past them or whatever it might be. That's sort of the hidden fear of what's down there, but also the hidden excitement, perhaps, or the imagination of of what might be occupying those dark depths. You know, I think I think things like the seahorses, the, you know, the idea of a uh, you find a, a little baby or d a dead seahorse washed up on a beach and you might imagine, oh, it came from this giant dragon that, that laid it down in the in the deep dark depths or something like that. You know, you can imagine that in the glimpses of a, a giant squid at the surface turns into a serpent or whatever it might be in your imagination. So I guess there's that side of things, but equally, maybe it's just, maybe it's just our human propensity to forget about what we don't see right in front of us and that we focus in on our surroundings. And maybe that's, maybe there's a good reason for that. Maybe we couldn't be letting our minds occupy themselves with everything beyond its, its own reach, if you like. It just really struck me this idea that, yeah, all it takes is for you to walk out on a dark night and to remember that there's this big space out there. But how do we get reminded about the deep ocean or even the ocean at all? And this, you're walking along the edge of it. And even then you might just stop at the horizon. You know, your mind might not reach too much further than that. Maybe it's a human trait. I don't know where it comes from, but perhaps it is something to do with that's what your mind can process as well. Maybe it's a scale thing in there too. I've always wondered about that actually, in terms of, you know, we as humans, we've evolved to perceive a certain range of wavelengths of light and there's a lot we don't see. And we, I think we've also in the same way kind of evolved to understand a certain range of sizes. We can neither imagine the infinitesimally small, neither the 
enormously big. And so, you know, a human sort of time scale and a human physical scale are what we can kind of associate ourselves with. So equally, it's hard to imagine geological time and how do you get your head around millions of years of change? And we have to find ways to do that. Um, maybe there's just a limit on what we think about, you know, as a as a species. I, I don't know. I don't. I think it's something I'm going to keep wondering on. I don't know what your thoughts are on that. Well, very similar to yours, that much, so much of popular imagination about the sea has has tended towards the foreboding, the dark, the foreboding. You know, Homer's cold, gray, fish-bearing sea, and ships that don't come back, and all those things that you touched on. Thing, what might be down there to brush against my leg, or oh, do you even eat me? There's a wildly popular show on television too, actually, over here that, in that vein, make me completely mad. One is called Wicked Tuna, and it's about macho fishermen going off to slay and challenge and test their metal against giant tuna. And then there's massive celebration of Shark Week, which largely feeds into the mythology of sharks and the vilification of sharks. And you just, they are both such glorious, wonderful, wondrous creatures, so vital to the way the ocean works. That's what I loved about this bit that I just read. You hook it back to reminding us of all of the ways that our lives actually depend critically on the ocean. Intellectually, we may have it out of sight and out of mind, but ecologically and biologically, it's the integral part of the life support system that keeps all of us alive. And so it's, it's frightening to me that as a scuba diver, you would never let your scuba gear be that out of sight, out of mind, because your life is depending <laughs> on it. And as an astronaut, I would never let my life support system be that far out of sight and out of mind and mistreated. And yet here we are together on this blue planet that is critically driven by and tempered by and fed by the ocean. And it's meh. For me as well, I guess what I would just love to see is more, and I think we're getting there, more people are, are thinking this way, but but celebrating that the joyous wonder of the ocean and what lives there, you know, not how we can conquer it and kill it or use it or make money out of it, but just appreciate and love the fact that it is there and that all these things are there, you know, to just genuinely celebrate the fact that we share this planet with, yeah, tuna that race at ridiculously high speeds through the ocean and sharks that are extraordinarily diverse and everything else that we have out there but just to yeah have that celebration as opposed to oh how can i make money out of it and what can we use it for just because you know it's life on earth it's all of us in this together they are our neighbors and our our co-species on this planet yeah so i have to ask you a question in that regard there's a popular concept making the rounds these days in ocean and societal circles economic circles of a blue economy Tell us what that means and what's your take on it? Yeah, so the blue economy, I guess it is. It's this becoming very popular idea that, well, I, I think there's two sides to it, actually. I mean, one is the realization that an awful lot of what we do need and use either for free or supporting jobs and economies around the world is linked to the oceans in some way. So, you know, just fishing is an obvious example of that. The enormously important um, industries around the world for for people livelihood and for, for su supplying food and so on. And it goes deeper than that, you know, the idea, I mean, a very popular part of this at the moment is the idea of blue carbon. I think that does tie into this blue economy idea that the oceans and various habitats in the oceans store an almost an enormous amount of carbon for us. And so therefore particularly important with the uh, storage of that terrible greenhouse gas we are 
struggling to deal with with the um, climate crisis at the moment. So therefore putting more importance on those habitats. And then I guess some people and increasingly people are taking this idea of the, the economic side of these blue habitats that we have and either saying, well, you know, we should be thinking about the economic value of, say, a mangrove forest or a seagrass meadow, which is locking up all this carbon. And if we could sell carbon credits or figure out how to, you know, monetize that or, or use that as a way to protect it, you know, that's one thing we could do. Um, but equally, and I think the more worrying side for me personally, in terms of an, an aspect on this blue economy sphere is almost an expectation that the ocean should provide humanity with the basis for a growing economy specifically. And that's what worries me the most, actually, is the idea that the ocean should be part of looking for economic growth and pushing towards that. Because, I mean, there are aspects to, to that which could really lead you towards damaging, I think, exploitation and over-extraction. If all of your thinking about is, well, you know, how can we use these ocean riches without living or non-living riches in the ocean or various things we could extract from the ocean, you know, how can how can we leverage that for the betterment of, of global economies, which... I think that's the misfocus in all of this. I think what we should be bringing it into is knowing, as you already, you know, you already said, we rely on the oceans and healthy oceans in ways that we're starting to understand in ways that we still haven't quite fully grasped. A lot of that is is free. It's not something we pay for. We don't pay for the oceans to process our carbon, to store the heat that we've produced um, through greenhouse gas emissions to provide us with food. We don't pay uh, the oceans for the fish that comes from that or the seaweed that we farm from that, all the different things we can do. Or the oxygen that we breathe, which half of which is produced by the sea. No one is getting billed for that. Exactly, exactly. The climate regulation, all of these things are coming to us as part of this wonderful living planet of ours. And so if we can try and get away from just putting dollar money, dollar signs on all of this. I think I think that's what we need to do because it's so easy for that to slip or for someone to change their mind about what the actual value is of this. Or we've got a replacement for it, which is cheaper, so we'll do something else. Coming away from this this idea of it all has to be certainly about economic growth, I think is is where we need to be pushing this. So yeah, I have I have mixed feelings about the this, that term, the blue economy. I think we if we can find more ways to make those connections and to care and to figure out how to to look after those blue parts of the planet, then great. But let's not do that at the expense of saying, we know we need to keep taking more and more over time. I think that's not the way we, we really need to be thinking differently. Yeah, the, the speed of the race for money seems always to be much faster than the race for knowledge. Yes. But I think one of the things that the brilliant abyss does brilliantly well done. Pun, pun, <laughs> accidental pun, total accidental pun. I'm a geologist, not a punster. I think it does a great job of, of showing that, I mean, you, you lay out so much really revolutionary research that's come by in, in recent years. I've only been an oceanographer for coming on 50 years, and I learned so much because I've not been tracking the literature. So you know, these waves of new knowledge that are coming out that that tell us more and more about this importance. And yet that knowledge is not advancing fast enough to give us real certainty about what the consequences would be if we just ramp fishing levels up again or mine metals off the seafloor. The things, the things we could crash, the functions of the ocean we could lose because we didn't know that they were linked to these metals we just scraped off of a seamount, for example. All of that downside potential is there and I find very worrisome. Yeah, we're learning so much. And the more we look, the more we find, certainly in the deeper parts of the ocean, but just simply because no one has been doing that. We haven't had the eyes and the technologies in, in the ocean to 
to be looking at this enormous part of our planet before. But equally, yeah, you're right. The speed of understanding that is being overtaken by the, this this hunger to to say, what well, great, what can we do with it? And I, and it is this, this historic connection and an inability of humanity to, to disconnect exploring with exploiting. And that just has gone hand in hand, whether it was commercial whaling back in the day or whatever it might be, there's always that thing in, in people's minds of well, how can I make money out of this? And I just really hope that the ocean, the deep ocean especially could be, it could be a turning point potentially for humanity to say, you know, we could do things differently this time. We could actually say, no, let's not just race on because we are getting these hints of tipping points and things that are going to be really very hard, if not impossible to reverse. So let's be smart. Let's be really smart about this and not just push in without really looking as we have always, always done in the past. Let's do it differently this time. And you'd be so wise. <laughs> if only. <laughs> <laughs> I did really want you to share a piece of, of the writing of The Brilliant Abyss with our listeners. And you and I talked before we started the tape running about one particular passage where you described some of my favorite critters in the oceans as well. Would you give that a read? Of course. Here we go. Common in midwater are animals with delicate, gelatinous bodies. Some look like flying saucers, some like tangled feather boas, and some like round-bodied spiders with too many spindly legs. There are glistening spheres with rainbows flickering across them and elaborate glass chandeliers complete with glittering lights. So one of the things that my scuba diving buddies hate me for, there's two things they hate me for. One is that I can get about twice as much time underwater out of a tank of air that they do because I basically don't move and they go rocketing around chasing fish. But the other is when they're all already back on the boat, I'll come up to 15 or 20 feet and spend another 30 or 40 minutes there just looking at these lovely gelatinous forms in the midwater. And, and to them, I'm just like baiting them. I'm just, you know, she, she could get back on the boat. We could pull up the anchor. We could go on to the next stop. What on earth is she doing there? There's, there's nothing there. Why is she still there? But there's just this magical array of these gelatinous critters even up in the shallows, if you just look. If you just look, exactly, exactly. I'm with you too. I'm also that annoying scuba diver who will stay down to the last breath of my tank if I'm allowed and stay much longer than everybody else. But it is just looking. And that was one of the things I enjoyed researching the book and speaking to people who are real pioneers in this open water research, first in shallow waters and then, and then deeper down, kind of transferring this idea down into the deep ocean of all you need to do is, is look. These kinds of creatures need to be seen in situ. They can't be extracted and kept in any kind of form like you would see them in their natural environment because they're just delicate creatures. They, yeah, they slip through your fingers, they fall apart. There's no way of, you know, maybe, maybe we could come up with, and some people have come up with some clever ways of capturing a jelly, you know, in some kind of pressurized chamber and taking it onto land. And you get maybe a few like that, but mostly, that's what you do. Put yourself in the water and see them. You know, I love, I love that too. I mean, I especially love, and I'm looking forward to actually my first, um, possibly my first experience of black water diving. Have you done that at night? Oh, night diving. Yes. In the open water specifically. Oh yes. Or, or yeah. little bombies, little, little yeah. mounds that don't reach the surface out, out in the coral oh, sea, for example. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm hoping to have my first opportunity to go, hopefully off Hawaii, it'll all depend on travel and dive in above water that's several thousand, tens of thousands of feet deep, I guess, and just hover in the open water at night 
to experience the the nightly migration of these twilight zone creatures that come to the surface at night and then go back down again at the sun at sunrise and that again is all of these extraordinary gelatinous creatures i mean true deep dwellers that are just visiting the surface at nighttime and and then going back down again i'm hoping i'm going to get to do that because i've never done that and that would be wonderful Oh, that would be grand. There's so many more things I'd love to talk with you about. You forayed <laughs> off into free diving. And I'm curious uh, yeah. whether that is, what is the mixture of a different experience of the sea and a different experience of your body when you free dive? Oh, yeah. It's such a mixture of the boat. I guess prime, initially it's the body experience. It's this idea of swimming down longer and deeper than you might think you can, uh, just on a breath of air. And, you know, even with a small amount of training, I think I did about three days of, of training for free diving and then was exceeding depths I would never expect to get to. I went down to 60 feet. I think it was about 60, 70 feet. On one breath of air? On a breath of air, yeah. And just thinking, oh, my goodness, that was not what I was expecting. But and holding my breath for I think I did one static hold for nearly three minutes. And again, I don't know if you ever tried this, but something I think if you asked me to do it now, I would freak out and I wouldn't want to do it. But I was in the ocean and I was looking at some fish and the time just passed and someone said, oh, that was three minutes. Well, um, wow. <laughs> again, with some training, <laughs> with some training to teach your body that you actually are OK deeper and for longer than you think you are and learning to relax. So it's, a lot of it is just this, a meditative state as well, almost of really controlling your heart rate. Um, obviously, you, you kind of you breathe very gently and uh, slowly up to a good free dive, you know, you're not you're not hyperventilating, you're you're really relaxing and getting down there. And, and then if you do, and I'm, I'm not someone who pursues depth in that way, like I, I did that 20 meter dive almost to see if I could. And then I was like, great, I'm probably not going to do that again. But it's nice to know I can. For me, sort of slightly shallower depths are kind of the sweet spot, maybe, uh, I don't know, 10 feet, 20 feet, something like that, where you can just hover and, and just very easily be in the water. And as much as I love scuba and I always want to do that, there's something just so quiet and simple about being neutrally buoyant. And that means taking down quite a lot of weight with you, more than I expected, actually. I mean, quite a big heavy weight belt to let you just hover let's say it, yeah, let's say it 20 feet and just be there for a minute and hover there. And the animals, you know, the fish will not swim away so much because you haven't got the bubbles and you can just, you can just be in the water and it's, an, you know, in open water or, or, you know, near the seabed, wherever you are, it's still a wonderful, it's a wonderful way to experience that ocean. You can't stay for very long, but it's nice to have that moment of peace and an observation, I think. So I love doing both and I hope I'll get to keep doing both of those those ways of being in the ocean for as long as possible, because it's, um, yeah, it's a great thing to be able to do. And what about getting to go personally firsthand into the abyss, which is tens of thousands of feet deep, thousands of meters, 6,000 meters down to 11,000 meters. There's not scuba and free diving down there. You need a seriously <laughs> strong titanium sphere. You Any do. interest in doing that? I would love to. I mean, I loved following your exploits, Kathy, going down into the Mariana Trench and lots of other people who've since followed you as well with um, that wonderful team. Yeah, I would. I'm, I am slightly claustrophobic, so I know I'd have to overcome that. Not, not badly, but I think I would have to uh, maybe have, channel my inner free diver in terms of just controlling my relaxing and, and not freaking out about what's coming because it's going to be a long time, hopefully, you know, in, you know, a whole day or whatever, it, however long it's going to take. I would jump at the opportunity to go into the deep ocean and see it for myself. I haven't ever done that. And I would love to, again, a hugely, I guess, life-changing perspective on the planet. I'm sure you've had, you know, you've had that and, and I'm sure it's something that will stay with you, I guess, having sort of been there you, yourself and looked out of that window at 
this other place we've thought about a lot and, you know, lots of people have been and there's a whole bunch of ways we now study and understand these deep parts of the ocean. But there's n something very different about being there, even if you still, I think what I would be wanting to do is probably, well, not really, but, you know, I'm still stuck in a bubble. I think I'd love to get out. Oh, no, I couldn't, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> that would be really bad. But your imagination does wish yeah. for the the frame of the viewport to go away. That's that's yeah. true. Well, yeah. and it's your master's alma mater, University of Newcastle, is where the lead, the team lead of the science team that works with Victor Biscovo is based. And yes. Alan Jameson has done fabulous work, yes. shallower than, well, in the Marianas Trench, but also at somewhat shallower trenches where there are still mm. fish and yes. large yes. crustaceans and just other absolutely magical critters. Yes. Oh, yes. Yeah, sadly, Alan wasn't there when I was a student. I think if he had been, I suspect my trajectory might have been a bit different. <laughs> I may not have escaped off to Malaysia. Perhaps I would have escaped to the <laughs> bottom of a trench instead. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> well, Helen, a feature of this podcast that's becoming quite common is to have a little bit of a lightning round of quick, short questions on the tail end. So sure. ready for some lightning questions? Yes. Dogs or cats? Oh, cats. Yes. Hidden talent? <gasps> Hidden. Oh, I like to wear my talents very obviously. I've, I've given away my breath holding. Give me a moment. I think of something. Mm. Hidden karaoke star? <laughs> well, I keep my piano playing pretty well hidden at the moment. Maybe that's it, simply because I don't really play very much. There's a bit of a hidden. <laughs> I do play piano. There you go. <laughs> Your most memorable dive? Ooh. One that springs to mind right now, I have loads, but the last dive I did in Palau uh, a little while ago and dived with a manta ray, a very close encounter with a manta ray. It was a dive I was told there'd be mantas and I didn't think I'd have my luck. And then I looked across and literally within arm's reach, there was a huge manta ray kind of watching me. And I've heard that they're quite smart creatures. They have fairly big brains. And I was just fairly sure it was thinking about, what are you? And I was thinking, what are you? It was a good moment. It was a great moment. That's wonderful. Do you have a favorite fish? I have like a rolling, a rolling kind of weekly, you know, this week's favorite fish is because there's so many wonderful things. So, <laughs> so it changes frequently, I guess. I mean, seahorses will always be on that list of the top ones. But lately with my mind getting into the deep ocean, it's some, probably some deep critter, uh, some wonderful deep thing, uh, like the barrel eyed Pacific barrel eye fish, those crazy things with these sort of Buzz Lightyear gelatinous helmets over their yeah. enormous green emerald eyes, which spin around looking for bioluminescence. Something like that, I think, is up there right now. Oh, very cool. If you could travel back in time, what period would you travel to? I have a strong urge to go back to the Devonian. Can I go back that far? Is that around? About 400 oh, yes, million years? Yes, but tell us what it is. So an era when the oceans were filled with very different creatures. And I would really like to experience, possibly with some fairly good protective gear, placoderms. And uh, these giant armored fish were like, and including Dunkelosteus, which are these enormous predatory fish with these huge yeah, armored heads. They had these great big kind of almost turtle-like jaws. Um, we have evidence that these things were enormously big and they also fought each other. There's sort of evidence of, of um, fights that have happened between them. Not that I'm a very violent person by any means, but I think I would just really like to experience what the ocean was like in a prior era of very different fish to the ones that we know today. So these, these animals are no longer around. We don't have these. They were kind of the precursors, we think, to many of the modern fish we have. But just ocean giants, I, I would love to experience those. And that was, see if I remember my geological time scale, 400-ish million years ago? 
I think so. Yeah, I, th yes. I, I think it's around then. Yeah, yeah. So critters we only know by fossilized remains. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, let's bring the fossils to life. Can I do that? That would be great. Thanks. That might be a different kind of time travel, but I, I'm right there with <laughs> <Okay>. you. <laughs> You've been writing busily, but what's the last book you read? Oh, I just read Paradise by Toni Morrison. Ah. I finished that a couple of days ago. Yeah, I've been reading a lot of fiction since lockdown. I've been hungrily transporting myself to other places when I cannot. <laughs> and if there was one thing... You could wave a magic wand and everyone would understand and be moved by one thing about the ocean. Oh. What would that be? Just one thing. Mm, that's tough, isn't it? I guess it would come back to, I'm trying to think if I can narrow it down, but just something to do with a sense of wonder and joy and celebration in terms of the life that's down there. If I can be slightly general, maybe I would say I would want everyone to know that when we look in the ocean and we see what's there, it's almost always, it's going to be a case of, wow, look, not, oh gosh, gross. <laughs> I, <laughs> I just, <laughs> you know, I personally think all of life in the ocean is wondrous and beautiful in its own different ways, but I think there is so much wonder and beauty to be had. I think I would like that to be the general idea of, you know, we look and we'll absolutely just, as you would, Okay, how about this? How about I would like people to imagine that when we look into the ocean and look for life, they would be as excited as if we did that on another planet, just as excited as we would be to find life somewhere else. This is our planet and it's our blue planet and it's full of life that could just easily have existed somewhere else. It's so strange and wonderful. So maybe that, that sense of just absolute joy and wonder that we might project onto other planets, let's put it onto ours too. Well, I'm right there with you on that. I have to say, my notes have many, many more bits of the text that you've written that I just loved. You write so brilliantly about a whale fall. So when a whale dies and falls to the bottom of the ocean, that's like, that's like DoorDash or Grubhub. That's food delivery to the critters that live in the deep sea that you know, are not, they're not critters that are built to move very far. So they are dependent on home delivery, as it were. And you, you said that... Uh, that a whale fall is not some chaotic free-for-all. It's an orderly meal with separate courses eaten by distinct groups of dining companions. And it's just such a brilliant way to <laughs> paint that picture of one wave after another uh, of critters moving in when their opportunity comes to feed and leave remains for the rest. So uh, again, I just, it would bore you if I read all your text back to you that I quite love. <laughs> Oh, no, I love it. Thank you. I'm just, it's just wonderful to me. I would have, I guess I write books not really knowing who's going to read them and who's going to find parts of it interesting or, you know, enlightening. And it's just always extraordinary when anyone says that, especially you, Kathy. So, you know, it really is a huge pleasure. Thank you. <laughs> Which actually reminds me of one question I, I really mustn't leave go by. When that writer and speaker climbed out of you back when, so you'd written scientific papers, and as you said, you were pretty okay in English in school. But what was your journey from that pretty okay writer or the scientist writing in jargon for your peers, from that writer to one who is as lyrical and evocative as you are now? I guess there was a few things that led to that. One was really quite a sudden almost, I remember it as being almost a kind of da, aha, kind of like hit me in the head kind of moment. 
of just understanding, suddenly understanding the power of words and story to communicate about anything, but particularly about science and about the ocean. I almost, I remember quite vividly watching Kate Aidy, the wonderful war correspondent. I don't know if you know her. She's a BBC, she was a BBC reporter for years. She went off to report in various extraordinary parts of the planet, in you know, mostly in, in very dangerous and important situations. But, you know, she had this way of delivering that information and making it accessible and showing people what was happening in the world. And I think it was during my PhD time, actually, when I, you know, I went into the PhD thinking I'd come out the other end staying very much within science, within conservation, perhaps I'd go back to Malaysia and work for WWF and, and work my way up and end up in Washington, D.C., heading up WWF's marine program. That was the kind of thing I thought I was going to do. But then midway through the PhD, I did. I had this aha moment of watching people like Kate reporting on, you know, really important high level current affairs and thinking, oh, maybe I could do that for the ocean. Maybe I could help tell people about the equally, I think, is important in different ways, things that are happening down there. So I had that. And then it came as well with me having the opportunity to try out different things, which I had never thought of before. I genuinely hadn't thought about writing or making radio programs or talking, you know, doing public talks and that kind of thing. And I just tried those out because being an, a grad student, there were these opportunities I could say, hey, I'll write for the student newspaper. Let's have a go at that. And oh, hey, let's let's try making radio programs for the student radio station. So I tried that and I found I really loved doing all those things. I genuinely found this sudden joy in writing stories and putting words down and talking to live audiences and talking on the radio and also finding I wasn't too bad at it. I mean, I certainly loved it enough to kind of get through the early stages of then getting more experience and, 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 and learning from others too. I think that for me was very important. There were people who really helped me through those early stages after I'd had that initial kind of, oh, I think I might like this and, oh, I think this might be important to, okay, how do I do this? Because this seems to be something that a lot of people might want to do and it's going to be challenging and how do I break into this? And so I slowly realized that it helped if I would just, well, put myself out there and always say yes when opportunities came along and then ask for more help along the way and say, look, hey, how do I make a radio program if I want to be on the BBC? How do I write a book? Because I suddenly, yeah, I felt like, I want to write a book. I, I should say another moment, actually, when this came to me was was writing my PhD thesis. So I got to the end of my research in Malaysia and I was writing up and, and I enjoyed that part. And most people don't really enjoy that part. Certainly in the UK, we have to write a great big long thesis. I can't remember if it was 80,000 words. It was a great big thing, which I suspect five people have read, if that, in total at this point. And I had this sense of really enjoying the more storytelling parts of it, the, the introduction where I could op you know, open out this topic I was writing about and then the discussion at the end when I could really wrap it up and look to the future and discuss these ideas. And I thought, well, I want to write a book that more than five people are going to read. So how do I do that? And so I went off and I asked, I spoke to agents and I talked to publishers and, and other writers actually it was a very powerful way of me doing that. I had some very great opportunities to be in the room with some great writers and then a friend of mine said, go and talk to him, you know, go up afterwards and ask him how you write a book about seahorses. How do you do it? So I said, no, he won't want to know. And he said, no, go and talk to him. This was, uh, it was Simon Winchester came to Cambridge. Oh he my goodness. Yes. Talk. Yeah. So Simon Winchester was a, gave a talk. A friend of mine said, hey, come along and, you know, watch this talk. And then at the end, she's like, oh, because he actually, during his talk, spoke about his mentor when he was writing early on. And so my friend said, you know, you want to write this book, go and ask him, to, you know, go and ask him for some help, you know, go and see what, what happens. So I kind of did. And I went up and I said, hi, I had this idea. And, and he said, okay, that sounds interesting. All right. And then we left it at that. And then sometime later, that same friend, when I was still struggling to get anywhere with this book idea of mine, she said, you know, you had that conversation with Simon Winchester. Well, 
oh, why don't you see if he could help some more, like get in touch with him. And I was like, well, how do I do that? How do you get in touch with a famous writer? What do you do? Well, okay. And so I, you know, looked at his books, figured out who his agent was, wrote a message to his agent, trying to pretend I was way more important than I really was and said, I would like, you know, I'd like a mess. Could you send a message through to Simon? He, we met in Cambridge and so on and so on. And, and then, yeah, he responded and he looked at my proposal. And I, this is a key thing as well. I'd really like to pass on. I mean, this is for anything, especially if anybody is maybe thinking of going into to writing or, or this kind of field, because you're going to get told no a lot. So I, I had this idea for this book and I sent it across to Simon and he wrote back and he said, yeah, mm, no, I don't think it's quite, no, I don't really get it. I don't think this is going to really work. And so I was like, okay. And I wrote straight back and I said, why? What's wrong? What do you think could be better? And almost by return of email, he said, good, that's the right answer. Here's my phone number, call me I'll, and we'll talk this through. Because we hadn't actually spoken at that point, it was just over email. So it turned out that this kind of gut feeling, I didn't even know why I'd said that. No, tell me why, why is it not good? Tell me what I can do to make it better. He's like, well, that's the attitude you need to have because it's never going to be perfect first time. You're always going to need to work on it. So yeah, and so we had a conversation and he helped me through with ideas. I rewrote the proposal and then that's the one that got the book deal. So I guess it was just that feeling of asking for help. And then it, even if it's not quite the right answer you want, well, seeing how much more help you can get to figure out how to change that and working hard at it and not expecting it to be a yes first time because it's never going to be a yes first time. And if it's a no, if you can get that feedback on, well, why? Then that can sometimes open a door you weren't expecting to be open. So yeah, I think that's my story through. But um, there were just these kind of, yeah, moments of realizing it was a joyous thing that I enjoyed, realizing that if I worked hard at it, I could get better at writing. I still think that I'm still always getting better. And if you can read and write and read and write and think, then your writing will get better too. And in whatever way you want to take it, um, it's not necessarily something you instantly have. But if you enjoy it, you know, I absolutely recommend it as a thing to do. It's an extraordinary experience to write down. In this case, for my latest book, a good 80,000 words and send them out into the world and see what people think of them. It's a huge privilege. Well, you have surely grown your audience to well beyond five people. I mean, you've <laughs> I hope so. wonderful awards, Spirals in Time, your book about seashells was BBC Four book of the week and got book of the year nominations by the times times of london for all the listeners here uh, the guardian the economist and nature i mean so bravo you're well above five <laughs> i did it <laughs> you probably got three at least three or four zeros on that five now <laughs> oh it's a huge privilege like, yeah as a, i don't think i ever imagined that it would keep going for this many books as well i mean it was just a, it was one book after the next really is it's, it's 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 all you can do but uh getting to the point where you think oh yeah this is this is a thing now i can probably keep doing this that's that's a nice feeling it's a very nice feeling and so do you have some other notional titles in work more books will be coming I do, yes. I've recently, just this year, made my first foray into children's writing, so young writing for young people, um, young readers. So I had a title about the Great Barrier Reef came out earlier this year, which was wonderful. I mean, and what I love about that is, I guess, coming back to this early interest of mine in art, and I continue to have that, but felt very much like I was drawn into science. And at my high school, you had to kind of choose really certainly later on if you wanted to be an artist or a scientist. And so science was for me, but realizing I can come back and really embrace the more creative side of 
of me. I don't do the pictures, but I collaborate with amazing artists and I love doing that. It's a wonderful process to have ideas about the world and then have a fab fabulous artist come and interpret that. So I have that book. I'm now working on another with uh, the same publisher and I have a couple others with other titles in the pipeline too, all ocean related. And I'm very excited about those. So those are coming. And I also am in the early stages of the next book for adult readers. And all I will say is it's going to be a future looking perspective on the oceans. Um, so I'm going to be casting an eye ahead. Have any of the artists that you've worked with, I mean, the illustrations in the Brilliant Abyss uh, on the cover are just exquisite. Are these artists that have seen some of these creatures or are, are you able to show them exemplars or photos that they can work from? Yeah, some of them. I mean, so the guy I work with on so far on my adult titles on Spirals and Time, he did the front cover for Eye of the Shoal. He did too, is a guy called Aaron John Gregory. He's based um, out of California and he did train him. He's a, a diver. He's a very passionate underwater, you know, marine biologist and an observer of the ocean. So yeah, he shares my absolute love of, of living creatures. He also has the same passion as I do with the past. You know, he's recreated a lot of these fossil creatures, which I write about and imagine what they might look like. And so often that's a combination of our imaginations in terms of what we know and what scientists are saying and also you know, what he thinks things might have looked like. And sometimes he, he, he's great. He'll do all his own research and uh, in terms of what things look like, because he's got that, you know, he's has that experience himself. Some of those other artists don't necessarily have that background in biology. So, so then it's up to me to provide those, those reference materials. And you never know where that might come from. I mean, just today I'm, so I'm doing another book about, so young readers book on seashells. So I've been wanting to do that for a while and I found, found a place for that to happen. And we've just realized I was just I was watching a David Attenborough documentary the other day and there was this piece about how these amazing painted snails in Cuba have incredibly colorful shells. And I was like, oh, that needs to go in the book. So, so I took a screenshot, sent it over to the uh, illustrator and I was like, you need to do these guys too. So you never know where ideas will come from. And it's a wonderful thing. I love that collaboration between the science and the art and, and reaching out and producing a really beautiful thing. And having those picture books is just, again, just a wonderful thing to to create and to be able to hold and, and to give to people. And I love that. It's wonderful when a strand of your life you thought you had left behind wraps back into the one that you're, you're working on. Absolutely, yes. Thanks so much for joining me on today's mission. For more solo shows and deep dives with incredible guests, along with all the ways to get the podcast and much more, head over to kathysullivanexplores.com. This podcast is brought to you by the InterAstra Institute. New episodes are available on Spotify, Apple Music, and most everywhere podcasts are found. To be the first to know when the next episode drops, head over to interastra.space.